what a difference 10 days can make. Welcome, Blazers fans, to the Blazer Focus Podcast. I am Aaron Fentress of the Oregonian and Oregon Live, and this podcast is brought to you by Bymart and Fred Meyer. A lot to get to today, starting with the Blazers going on that six-game road trip and going 5-1. and one. This came after... They had lost five in a row, including two in a row against Memphis. They were falling down the Western Conference standings at a pretty alarming rate. And then they put the brakes on, reversed themselves, and now they're back in the mix for fifth in the West. Unbelievable turnaround. I will get into that. Also on tap today, big game Friday against the Lakers. Can the Blazers take advantage of the sinking Lakers, who will be without LeBron James, at least according to the most recent reports. Who knows? He may have to get on the court sooner rather than later because they are now in danger of falling into the play-in round. Also, I'm going to talk very briefly about the latest scuttlebutt involving Coach Terry Stotts and his future. Also, the Blazers will have 10% fan capacity for home games. They have four home games remaining, and that number may go up for the playoffs. That's great news for the select few Blazers fans who will actually get to go to the games. I'll dabble into that subject. Also, what's going on with the defense? Suddenly, they actually play decent defense. How is that possible? I'll talk about that. And last but not least, I'm going to have a few words to say about Carmelo Anthony making history, becoming the 10th all-time leading scorer in the history of the league, doing that in a Blazers uniform. And then I'll shift from Carmelo to Kevin Love because he made some interesting comments regarding whether or not he would like to play in Portland with Damian Lillard. That's all coming up on the Blazer Focused Podcast. Fans will be allowed back in Moda. Well, a certain amount of fans, 1,900, 10%, at least it's something. If you're a Blazers fan that's been just dying to get the Moda and watch a game, slow your roll a little bit. The tickets will be given out first to long-tenured season ticket holders, so By my guesstimate, unless you've had Blazers season tickets for 10, 15, 20 years, you probably have no shot at getting a ticket. The Blazers say that after they've gone through that process, if there's any tickets remaining, those would go up for sale to the general public. So pretty unlikely that your average fan is going or many average fans are going to get a season ticket unless you've had season tickets for a long time. But the governor has granted the Blazers permission to host 10 percent fans, and that could go up. For the postseason, there's four regular season games remaining. Once the postseason begins, maybe they can get up to 20%. This was a a sharp reversal of fortune here because the Timbers and Thorns and and any outdoor sporting events were allowed 25% capacity in some counties until the numbers for COVID started spiking up. They were about 1,000 on Friday, I believe, and that's when the the alarms were starting to sound and the, the Timbers and Thorns were going to be denied the opportunity to host fans for the following weekend, or I think even that weekend, because of the rising numbers. And that was for outdoor. So that meant there was no way in heck you were going to have uh, fans for indoor events. Now, on Tuesday, Damian Lillard tweeted that it was kind of messed Well, I'm summarizing. It was kind of messed up that the Blazers would be the only team in the league to not have fans. As it turns out, 27 teams have had fans. The Chicago Bulls were scheduled to have fans for the first time on Thursday. And 
the Oklahoma City Thunder had opted out of having fans. That left the Blazers as the only team who wanted fans and wasn't going to have them. He tweeted about that. His tweet ended up getting like 57,000 likes and over 2,000 retweets. By the end of the day, the Oregonian and Oregon Live were reporting, based on sources, that the Blazers were actually going to receive permission to allow 10% capacity. Now, some joked on Twitter that, oh, look what Lillard did. Lillard complained in the governor cave. That's ridiculous, of course. That's not how it played out. Either way, it was kind of an interesting dynamic that took place. The bottom line is that the Blazers are going to have fans, and they're excited about it. Now, you could wonder, well, what's 1,900 fans mean? Well, basically, that's the equivalent of what you might get into a, a packed house for a high school basketball game. It may not seem like much if you're an NBA player used to 19,000, which is what the Moto Center holds. However, when you're going from zero to 1,900, that's a big deal. And Damian Lillard talked about how during some of these road games they've been on, and there's been anywhere from 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 fans, there were 4,100 at the Cleveland game on Wednesday, uh, that it made a difference. Like You could feel the vibe of those fans, and you could hear them. And yes, if you played, you know, in front of 19,000 and all of a sudden you only had 4,000, you'd be like, what the heck's going on? But if you're playing in front of zero and then you got 4,000, that's a big deal. And anyone who's ever performed doing anything, whether it's in entertainment or uh, sports, you know what it's like to have people watching you, whether it's 50, 100, 200, 300. <laughs> I mean, I've coached so many pro football games where we got up to 800 in a couple of games. Like, man, we got 800 people here. Oh my God, it felt like a packed house. It was loud. And that's because we were used to 150 or 200, right? It's all relative. Uh, so it's kind of cool that that Lillard, you know, says, hey, 1900 is going to be great. And then maybe 3,800 for the playoffs is going to be awesome just having the fans there. And he talked about how great the Blazers fans are and how, you know, they don't just come there to be cool. They come there to get involved. And 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 he, I think he said something like, uh, you know, they're going to have a beer in their hand. They'll be wearing their jersey. They're going to be participating in every little interaction with whatever's going up, up on the big screen. And they're taking it seriously. And so 1,900 fans, he believes, is going to make a huge difference. And it's going to help. It should help them, you know, actually have a little bit of a true home court advantage based on fans for Friday's game against the Lakers. Lakers, which is a huge game for sure. Now to Terry Stott. So it looks like this story or this idea, speculation about his job security is just picking up steam. Several different people have written about it. I have not really talked too much about it because I don't like getting into rampant speculation. A lot of the speculation out there isn't what I would call firm. It's more like, hey, you know, this could cost him his job or he might be on the hot seat or what have you, or they, they better do well in the playoffs. And I just don't like that level of speculation very much. Um, but I feel it's worth addressing here just because I just find it fascinating. Like, I'm amazed that anyone could look at where this team is right now and feel like the coach has failed it. And I'm, I'm not getting into strategy. If you want to say you don't like his offense, fine. You, 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 don't, you don't like what they're doing on defense fine. You know, we can have those debates. Clearly the defense has not performed well this year, although they've gotten better. I'll talk about that later, uh, especially with the re return of Nurkic. Um, but they had a massive amount of injuries. You lose your second best player for 25 games. You lose your third best player for 35 games. And then even when Nurkic, the third best player, returned for most of the games he's been back for, he was on a minutes restriction. And the first part of the season before he broke his wrist, he had, was admittedly out of shape. So, so you've only had maybe full bore Nurkish now for maybe like 10 games. And I think their defensive rating in those 10 games is like in the teens, the high teens. So they've clearly gotten better. 
CJ has not been the same player he was before he injured his foot. He's, you know, had some nice games here and there, but not anywhere near what he was doing before he got injured. Uh, so for them to be in position to still get fifth, they're half game out of fifth right now and seventh to me is almost a minor miracle. <laughs> like I, I, I feel like, you know, Oh, one, one last thing I, I've talked about this before. Damian Lillard had a horrible month, arguably the worst month of his career in the month of April when they went six and 10. Uh, so, you know, I, I would ask, you know, you look at the best teams in the West, the Utah jazz are 48 and 18. So they have 11 more wins than the Blazers. If Utah lost Gobert for 32 games, their their center rim protector, and lost Mike Conley, their second best guard behind Donovan Mitchell for 25 games, would they still have 48 wins? I don't think so. You could argue that they could be at 40 wins, high 30s, just like the Blazers. And so then I ask you, okay, if Nurkic and Lillard, excuse me, Nurkic and CJ had been healthy all season. Would they not have more than 37 wins? Could they be 43, 44? So then we'll be talking about firing Utah's coach, Quinn Snyder. Let's go to Phoenix. If Phoenix lost DeAndre Ayton for 32 games, their big man center, and lost Chris Paul, their second best guard. I'm going to say Booker's their best guard. You can debate that. But either one of them, he lost either one of those guys for 25 games. Would they have 47 wins? Remember, we're only talking like a, a five win flip, really. If you take five wins away from Phoenix and make those five losses, they're 42 and 24. It only takes five reversals to bring them closer to where the Blazers are. Um, and same thing for the Blazers. You take five losses away, you make them win. The Blazers are 42 and 24, which right now would have them firmly at the number five spot. So I, I feel like the Blazers are on par with where a team should be if they lose that many games from their second and third best player. So I don't see how you blame the coach for where they are. It makes no sense to me. It literally is offensive. Like it, it attacks my sensibilities. The idea that they should just get it done while losing all those guys. Well, if you can get it done and be top three or four without Nurkic and without CJ, then why have those players? If they're that irrelevant, we all know good players are very relevant, especially in the NBA. So how do you say you should still be an elite team, even if you don't have your second and third best players? That doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm confused by the whole thing. Again, if someone wants to say, hey, he's been there nine years, it's just time for a change, fine, whatever. But if someone says he should be fired because of where they are in the standings, I just can't accept that given all they've had to deal with. I think the coaching staff has done a great job keeping them where they are, 37 and 29. That's a 561 winning percentage. Over an 82-game schedule, that's 46 wins. Now, that's not great. You'd rather be at 55, 56 wins. But again, if you can win 46 games with those two missing that many games, I think that's an impressive coaching job. So anyway, that's all I'm going to say about it. There's going to be a lot of talk about this moving forward, especially when we get to the playoffs, when we find out where they're seated. Uh, if it looks like they're going to get bounced in the first round, could that be the death knell for, for Terry Stotts? Who knows? I don't even, I, I can't even guess as to where a lot of the speculation is coming from, to be honest with you. But there's already been some names tossed out as potential replacements. Chauncey Billups, Jason Kidd, Mark Jackson have been mentioned, at least in some circles. Mark Jackson was fired from Golden State. Jason Kidd was fired from Milwaukee. So it's interesting that those two names have popped up, especially kids. Anyway. Who cares about that right now? There'll be plenty of time to get into that, but I just want to touch on it real quickly. Okay, moving on. You are listening to the Blazer Focus Podcast. We'll be right back after a short break.
All right, let's talk about this Blazers defense. Now, they still rank 29th in the NBA in defensive rating. That's probably not going to change because when you're that bad on defense for months, it's very difficult to lift yourself out of that hole. Now, Terry Stotts said at the All-Star break that his goal was to see the team finish in the top half in defensive rating from that point forward, specifically when Nurkic returned forward. They began the second half with some bad games. They looked awful, but that was before Nurkic came back. Since Nurkic came back, they have been better. Not top half necessarily, but they have been better. They got up to 22nd or something like that. But Nurkic missed several games along that stretch as well, even after he came back or he was on minutes restriction. So since Nurkic has been playing basically a full boat of minutes and able to do all the things he's capable of doing, there's been some stretches where they've been in the top 10. On this current road trip through three games, they were definitely in the top 10. I think they were seventh. The loss to Atlanta dropped them back down into the teens, but there definitely was signs of growth on defense. But it all wasn't just about Nurkic. Damian Lillard said after the team's win at Indiana to start this road trip that he and others had basically said, it's do or die. It's now or never. We have to be willing to work hard and get our hands dirty and play desperate because they were sliding down the standings. Dallas had caught them. Denver had left them in the dust and they were in danger of finishing seventh or eighth and ending up in the playing round. So in that game, Malcolm Brogdon got off to a hot start. I think he had 14 points in the first quarter, and they were winning the game after the first quarter, I think 35-34. Then Lewis said, I've got, I've got Brogdon, and he shut him down the rest of the game. And he said he was completely committed to chasing Brogdon around, fighting through screens, and doing all the things necessary to shut another player down. And so to me, I was not shocked by this, but I was a little taken aback because the narrative outside of the Blazers amongst many fans and some of the media is that Stoss is the problem. He can't coach defense, even though this team has had top 10 defenses before. He has been the guy blamed mainly, you know, for their follies on defense. Forget the fact that Nurkic, their best rim protector and the guy who has the best defensive rating on the team, missed 35 games and began the season out of shape and then came back and was on a minutes restriction. So basically for about 50 games this season, Nurkic was either out of shape, out or on a minutes restriction. And you go from him to Cantor, who's a negative defender. Also, your best defender from an analytic standpoint in the backcourt is McCollum, who missed 25 games. And Lillard's a negative defender. Defender Trent was. Simons is still, although he's gotten better. And Powell has been a negative defender. So how are you supposed to have a good defense with all these perimeter guys being negative defenders and then Cantor? And then Carmelo's playing. He's definitely a negative defender. <laughs> And so you don't really have great defensive personnel. Yes, you had Covington. Yes, you have Derek Jones. But still, you didn't have the pieces there. Now, some people say, well, the overall team rating being bad because the coaching was bad is what brings down each individual's rating. Well, the bottom line is when you looked at the defensive ratings for the Blazers and compared them to, them to other bad teams individually, they compare. They, they all have individually bad ratings. Anyway, I asked Lillard a while back, is this on the players or the coaches? And he said, it's on the players. And then a few weeks later, a couple weeks later, whatever it was, they turned things around on this road trip at Indiana, at Memphis, and at the Nets, although the Nets were were without uh, Kevin Durant and James Harden. So it's amusing to me because clearly there's a disconnect between what many people think about the team and what the team thinks about itself. Now, we'll see if this lasts. I mean, they're, they're playing well. They got lit up by Atlanta, who was just red hot. Could have been just a night where another team, a good team, was hot. 
It had nothing to do with the Blazers. They were playing on the second of a back-to-back. But, you know, there's some tough games coming up. They still have Denver coming up. They have a game with Phoenix, Utah. They got the Lakers on Friday, although LeBron's not going to play. So we'll see if this defensive resurgence, or I should say surgence, this is not a resurgence since they never surged before, uh, means something moving forward. But I just find it amusing that essentially what we're being told is that the players decided it's go time. We're in the home stretch. The playoffs are around the corner. We've, we've got to improve our standing so we don't end up in the playing round. It's now or never. It's do or die. Yet for three and a half months, all we've been hearing from people in the media and fans is that Stoss has been the problem. I just find that hilarious on many different levels. Okay, now let's talk about what this road trip has meant to the Blazers. They had lost five in a row. They were in big trouble, as I said before. And then they, they rattled off four straight wins. And then they lost to Atlanta. Now, what those four wins did is sort of gave them firmer standing in this race with the Mavericks for that sixth spot. But it also put them in position to mess around with the Lakers a little bit because the Lakers are now falling as the Blazers were before. The Lakers have lost now, I think, let me look this up real quick as I'm talking here. They've lost six of eight games. They lost three in a row before upsetting Denver without LeBron the other night. So that shows they're still dangerous. But they lost six of eight, fell off big time, and all of a sudden they're in danger of falling into the seventh spot. As a matter of fact, at one point they were. Dallas, the Lakers, and the Blazers have sort of been going back and forth as to who's five, who's, who's six, who's seven, if they're tied or what have you based on what happens each night. What this means moving forward, because the Blazers gave themselves a, a boost there, with those four straight wins, they're in a legitimate position to mess around and finish fifth. They have the tiebreaker over Dallas because they beat them twice. If they can beat the Lakers Friday without LeBron James, they would have the tiebreaker over the Lakers. So that means the Lakers and Dallas would each have to finish a full game ahead of Portland to push the Blazers into seventh. If either of them tie or both tie, well, if one ties and the other finishes ahead, then the Blazers are sixth. If both tie, the Blazers, I believe, would finish fifth because they'd have the tiebreakers against both. Now, their schedule has been tough, the Blazers, for since basically the start of the second half, really, but really starting with Milwaukee a while back. But because of some happenings that are going on around the league, their final stretch here isn't as horrible as it once looked. Now, like I said, they have the Lakers on Friday, no LeBron. Then you have San Antonio, which is also in a free fall. They're not playing well. As a matter of fact, they've only had two wins against winning teams since March 2nd. Think about that. One was Phoenix pretty recently, a couple weeks ago, actually. So they're still dangerous. And, uh, you know, they had a tough game with the Blazers just a couple weeks ago. But they're not the same team. The Blazers beat them April 16th, 107-106. The bottom line is San Antonio is not playing well. But they're still dangerous. But I don't even know if they care anymore at this point. Uh, they haven't been playing good basketball. They're sitting at number 10 right now, which means they would get into the play-in. But the uh, Pelicans are right on their heels. So to me, if you're the Blazers, no LeBron Friday. you got to win that game. You come back Saturday, take care of business against the Spurs. And then, boom, Houston comes to town. Houston has the worst record in the NBA. you got Cleveland on Wednesday night, who has the second worst record in the East. As far as I'm concerned, if the defense has turned the corner and everyone's focused like they say they are, they should win all four of those games. If they win all four of those games, they have a great chance going into the final three to hold on to fifth or sixth and, and avoid the plan. Who knows what's going to happen with LeBron the rest of the way. The Lakers have not been wanting to play him in back-to-backs. They have two more back-to-backs, actually three more back-to-backs remaining because they have the Clippers Thursday and then the Blazers Friday. And he's already not, he's already not playing Friday. And they end the season with 
Knicks, Houston back-to-back, and then at Indiana and the Pelicans back-to-back. They might be desperate enough to avoid the play-in game that LeBron ends up sucking it up and playing, but things are not looking good for them. And if Portland can get that tiebreaker and then, like I said, win those four games coming up, they're going to be in a great position because if you're, if you're, if you're Lakers, you got Clippers, Spur, or Blazers, Suns, Knicks. That's going to be a tough four-game stretch. I could very easily see where the, the Blazers pick up two games on them right there. Like I said, they have the tiebreaker. Dallas has a much easier schedule the rest of the way. They have Cleveland twice coming up, but they also have Brooklyn. They also have Memphis, Pelicans. They end with Toronto, Minnesota. So you figure Toronto, Minnesota should be wins. Cleveland, Cleveland should be wins. Who knows who's going to show up for the net? I mean, you never know day to day who's playing for the net. So to call that a toss up. Call Memphis a toss up. They should beat the Pelicans. So Dallas, to me, is going to definitely finish five or six. Uh, the Blazers will finish probably five or six as long as they're for real. And I think the Lakers are going to end up in the playing round as long as Portland does not blow that game on Friday night at home against the Lakers minus LeBron James. All right, let's shift gears to Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony has been climbing the NBA's all-time scoring list all season. I think he began at 15, then he moved to 14 past Tim Duncan. He got past Oscar Robertson, Kim Olajuwon, and Dominique Wilkins was in there. And he, he ended up at 11. But he said all along he really wanted number 10. And I always thought it was cool when he kept passing people up. I'm like, wow, man, Dominic Wilkins, that's that's impressive. Duncan, Oscar Robertson, really? But getting into the top 10 did definitely feel different just watching it. And, and it was funny watching him. It was actually endearing because in the other games, he just went out and played. And there were a couple occasions where he scored a basket. And he said a guy at the uh, scorer's table said, hey, you passed so-and-so. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Or someone else informed him or whatever. He didn't really know exactly when it was happening. He was just out there playing basketball. But the the top 10, he really wanted. Because as he said himself, being in the top 10 of all time in anything, it's just a big deal. Just a number 10, right? Top 10 means so much more than top 15 or top 20. Maybe it's because... You know, this may all go back really to like the Billboard uh, top 10 charts, you know, which has been around for almost 100 years, it seems. So top 10 is always something that people like to strive for. Uh, So it it meant a lot to him. He needed 10 points to get past or to tie Hayes or to pass Hayes. Um, So he came in the game firing. Like he said he wasn't going to force it. Like, I don't want to force it. You know, I want to come naturally. Dude came in firing like right away. He ended up scoring 12 points within five and a half minutes Starting at the end of the first quarter into the second quarter, he made his first four baskets and a free throw. Three of his baskets were threes, and boom, he was past Hayes. And he knew it. And each time he made a basket, he had a big old smile on his face because he knew he was getting closer. Uh, So that was fun to watch. Like, you know, it's a shame this didn't happen in Moda. I mean, imagine what Moda would have been like when he got that. That uh, that basket is a three point basket, and he was fouled and converted the four, four point play. But the basket, the three point basket itself, put him into the top ten. Imagine if that had been a moda. I mean, that would have been like a chilling moment. They would have stopped the game, given them a ball, or whatever. Who knows what they would have done? Probably not stop the game, really, but just, maybe just for a second or so. But so it's a shame that it was on the road. It's a shame that it wasn't in front of home fans. But it was cool. Like I, I was like, wow, that's a pretty cool accomplishment to watch take place. That doesn't happen very often. So I was happy for him. And, and, and the fact that he was out of the league two years ago, Houston let him go. He didn't finish that season with the team, came into the next season without a team. That was last year, 1920. And then the Blazers had two injuries, Zach Collins. And I think Zach Collins was the one that led them to bring in Carmelo. 
Uh, Rodney Hood got hurt later on, but I think it was Collins really who got who got them to, to turn to Melo to be a, a power forward for them. And he went in there and he, you know, yeah, he's got defensive issues. He's older now. Um, he's not the same player, but he can still fill it up, man. He can still get hot. And this year, same thing. You know, there were some people who were down on him because of his defense early in the season. And he was shooting poorly to start the year. And then he just went off, went off. He just started going nuts and putting together great games. And he's responsible for some wins. There's some games he flat out won for them with his offense, especially in the fourth quarter. So that was great to see. Now, I'm going to segue from this into Kevin Love because a report came out. uh, Chris Haynes talked to Chris Haynes of Yahoo, talked to Kevin Love and asked him about going to Portland. He's from the Portland area, went to Lake Oswego High School uh, and said, oh, he'd love to come back to Portland and play with Lillard. Who wouldn't want to play with Lillard, et cetera? Although I had always heard that he wants nothing to do with coming back home, but whatever. But the reason why I'm linking these two is because to me, they both represent one of the problems Portland is having is that they can't get a marquee star to come to Portland in their prime. Carmelo even passed his prime when he ended up going from New York to OKC. He could have come to Portland maybe, and that didn't happen. And it's like Carmelo being here now is nice, but what if Carmelo had come to Portland when he was 32, 33 instead? I mean, he had, he never really had anything with him in New York. Had he come to Portland when he was younger, who knows what would have happened. Now, I'm not saying he necessarily should have. Portland was probably not even on his radar. I'm just saying it's one of those frustrating things where, like, you get Carmelo when no one else wants him. Had they gotten Carmelo when he was still Carmelo, who knows what he and Dame would have done together. You know, we just don't know. So, so then you look at Kevin Love. I honestly believe in 2018, I kept saying it over and over again, that Love was in a perfect position to come to Portland. In 2018, that was LeBron's last year in Cleveland. When he left, remember, he carried that team to the East Finals. So when he left, you knew Cleveland was going to be bad, right? And Love had one more year on his contract. Portland, coming out of that year, going into the next year, was going to have some expiring contracts. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, this is perfect. Love is still good. He's still all-star caliber. As a matter of fact, in the 2018-19 season, um, he played just as well as he did the year before when he was an all-star, right? So I'm um, looking at this up as I'm talking. So if you would have gotten him at that point, you would have added a legit all-star to the team. So 17-18, he was an all-star, averaged uh, 17 points, nine rebounds, shot 41% on threes, 46% overall. The next year, with LeBron gone, he shoots 39% and 36% from three and averaged 17 and 11, though. You, I believe you you put him on the team with Lillard, and they had Nurkic. They ended up getting Nurkic that year. No, they had Nurkic that year already. They got on the previous year. You have Nurkic, Love, Lillard, and McCullum. Do they win the NBA Finals? No. They're probably not going to beat the Warriors anyway. But that was the year Durant got hurt, and Toronto beat him. So, you know, maybe that team gets by... The Warriors minus Durant, and then they could beat Toronto. Who knows? But doesn't matter because Love stayed in Cleveland. And I'll never understand what he was thinking and what Cleveland was thinking. If Love thought they were going to continue to build around him, great. Okay. Good for him. Maybe they told him that. The idea that Cleveland was going to attract free agents, marquee free agents to go to Cleveland to contend, like Kawhi would ever go there or Lillard would ever go there or... Pick an all-star, any all-star, Durant. I mean, no one's going to Cleveland. That's one of the reasons why LeBron left the first time was because they couldn't get someone else to come there, even to play with LeBron, really. So the idea that they were going to build around Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson was just ridiculous. And from Cleveland's standpoint, to me, it didn't make sense, too, because Love was 30. He'd already had major injury issues. So, so listen to this. 
2017-18, that year, that last year with um, LeBron, he missed 23 games. And the year before that, he missed 22. And he actually, in 2018-19, ended up missing 60 games. Now, you can't predict that going forward. And obviously, if he missed 60 games, that wouldn't have been good for Portland. But I just didn't get, if you're Cleveland, why would you saddle yourself with a long-term mega deal for a guy who's 30 and already had injury issues and to me, you take Portland's draft picks, you take those expiring contracts, you tank, you, know, you have a horrible season. And oh, guess who was the number one pick in, two, in the 2019 NBA draft? Zion Williamson. Guess who was number two? John Morant. So if you're Cleveland, you could have been in the mix for, for one of those two guys and then had a boatload of cap space come free. Because you got rid of love and got expiring contracts. So I never understood that situation. Maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe something was going on in Cleveland I don't know about. But that didn't make any sense. There should have been a trade. That should have been made. They could have used those extra draft picks from the Blazers. Gotten that cap space. The Blazers get Kevin Love, another all-star. You put him with McCollum, Lillard, and Nurk, like I said. Who knows what happens? Um, So now, anyway, he's saying, oh, he'd love to come to Portland. Well, now he's 32, and he's still missing games. He's only played 21 this season. He missed about 20 last year, what have you. So now it's nowhere near as attractive as it would have been coming out of the 2017-18 season. So once again, it's a player that could have come here when he was younger and played with Lillard. But no, now his his career is starting to slide a little bit. Oh, well, now he would come to Portland. That's not what Portland needs. Portland doesn't need aging Kevin Love. Portland doesn't need aging Carmelo to contend, God bless him. Portland needs... Carmelo at 28, 29, 30. It needs love at 28, 29, 30. That's what it needs. That type of guy. So, you know, if the Blazers can get love, great. I guess, you know, go out and get him. He still has a ton of money left on his deal. I doubt he's giving that up. Uh, maybe there's a buyout that's going to happen. I don't know. But I don't think Kevin Love helps you all that much at this stage in his career. Even if he has a resurgence like Carmelo did, he's still going to be a liability on defense. So anyway, it's just irritating from, you know, just living in this town, waiting to see Portland land a legit free agent sometime in my life and seeing these two guys, Carmelo, thrive here and be happy and, and you know, move up the, the scoring list. Kevin Love even dropping the idea that he would love to come to Portland and them both doing it well after their prime. Anyway, just had to rant on that a little bit. Thanks for bearing with me. That brings us to the conclusion of this edition of the Blazer Focus Podcast brought to you by Bymart and Fred Meyer. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss a future episode.